out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician and record producer all the way from, well, started in Manchester, but now is in Berlin. It's the one and only Mark Reeder, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. He was in a lot of bands throughout his life, including Shark Vegas, um, that was in the 80s in Manchester, but then went to Berlin and has been part of that electronic techno scene ever since. And also he started the record label MFS, Masterminded for Success. But there's a lot of information, so I'm just going to let Mark tell his story. So, after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we got down to the exciting subject that was the, well, the musical moment that changed the course of his life. Mark, tell us what that was. We're waiting. Yeah, Doctor Who. Yeah, Doctor Who for sure. That, like, you know, but my first, actually my first single that I bought, I, I was like four and a half. It was just before I went to school. I got, I was, I had to go to school at four and a half. Um, it was Telstar by the Tornadoes. Right. Yes. I bought that. And then, and then it was maybe like a year later that Doctor Who came on the telly. And the first time you hear this kind of music, which was otherworldly synthesizer, you know, music, synthetic music, as it was, there was, wasn't even synthesizer. It was, it was just so otherworldly, like not, not, and it wasn't like myself as a little kid hearing this for the first time in my life, you know, actually nobody in the whole of Great Britain had ever, ever heard anything like it either. Yes. So like the whole kind of the general population were kind of freaked out by this kind of like futuristic synthetic music, which it just completely captivated me. I have no idea how, how it had been created. It just sounded fantastic. And, and it wasn't so very, you know, much a long time after that, like like somewhere in the seventies, I realised you know that it had been created on 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 an electronic instrument that had been created just to make that sound. It wasn't actually a synthesizer; it was actually just you know it was like some somebody putting it together, and this person was clearly a Derbyshire, right? And it was like fabulous, incredible piece of work, and that yeah, that's that really kind of made an impact on me. Because as much I, as Tornado does. The Tornado, yeah. Well, I came from a very small little village called Metfield. Next to us was Fresenfield, I know, in Suffolk. And um, there was a guy that we, when when we used to sort of go on the school bus, it was like, oh, that house, that man over there does the music for Doctor Who. And um, so he was one of those characters who then went off to Australia. So there was this kind of funny little connection. Obviously, I don't know what, bit, what bits of Doctor Who he did, but then he, I looked at his Wikipedia page and he had a huge list of different, yeah, soundtracks for sort of scientific... Uh, science fiction films so um mm. there was a strange little connection which i can't remember his name which is brilliant isn't it for an interview <laughs> <laughs> well you didn't know you were going to go on to this subject sometimes. no i would have <laughs> researched it. For it. <laughs> i just remember the picture of him you know with a kind of white coat and a beard and glasses and there he was in this little house in in sort of near in fresenfield so um that's it he's become quite very famous really so then when you did you were your parents at all musical or had any no. kind of musical bearing on your life no my mum my mum like frank ifield and jim reeves and my dad i mean my dad's musical taste was, was pretty eclectic really because you know he kind of like really started to get into more he liked a bit of classical music but he started to get more into kind of like more 
poppy kind of music and modern music around about sort of like the the late seventies. Actually, my dad wasn't really a fan of things like like Sweet and Gary Glitter. Thought it was rubbish, but um, he he actually really liked like Joy Division and stuff like that. And my dad was you know a, a sailor in his in his youth, yeah. You know? And he, and he like he kind of got into that kind of music and he bought like loads of New Order records and stuff like that. <laughs> And just because not only because of the interest of like you know the fact that he knew that i knew the band or anything but it was like he he was just generally genuinely like um interested in the music and he generally generally liked it and even went to see ein stutz and the neubauten perform at, at the hacienda you know and and, and he went oh, it was very it was very strange it was very weird but you know he was he was, he was my dad was that kind of character Wow, but they weren't a... musical then in any way. They didn't play any instrument or anything like that. They just like, liked to listen to music. Oh, I've now realised it was a guy called Tristan. Tristan. Oh, Tristan. Uh, yeah, Carey, yeah. Carey, he was the man yeah. who literally Tristan was. Tristan Carey, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he did the music for the, for the Doctor Who movies, actually. Right. And yeah. then various other bits and pieces. Sorry, that yeah, was yeah, he did, he did some fantastic soundtracks. Yeah. I think he did the Quater Mass and the Pit and things like that, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, they're all there, aren't they? Yes, so that was it. So when you were growing up, this was in Manchester, did you have, um, I must admit, I know this is a bit tedious, but I was, I became a massive Manchester United fan in the early 70s. Did that ever come into your consciousness, football, or was that something no. that you, you avoided? I, I was crap at football. And so I had no interest in football. I still have no interest in football at all. It doesn't, people always say, say, you know, I'm from Manchester and they own, the first question is Manchester City or Manchester United. And I'm like, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. It doesn't mean anything to me. I no, I think I don't, yeah. have, I don't have a favorite uh, at all. Really. No, that's, that's yeah. a wise choice. Because actually, one thing that happened, I'm, you know, as I mentioned, when I was born, my brother, who was seven years older, he was at that age, he was obsessed with prog rock. So he was into the, you know, Yes and Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barclay, James Harvest, and also the solo work of Rick Wakeman, Vangelis and uh, Pat Patrick Moraz. Did you, I mean, that that was kind of a bit of a prog rock moment that I started to get into at quite a young age. Did you did you start discovering prog in a, um, during the 70s at all? Or was yeah. that a bit later? I, I had an older cousin who was probably roughly about the same age as your brother, I imagine. He was about he was a couple of years younger, than, older than me. You know, of course, I was like eight or something, and he, and he dragged me around record shops on Saturday afternoon, you know, and I'd get, I'd get to listen to all this kind of music. It really kind of um, coloured my, my, you know, view of what music was, because we, as little kids, you just listen to music on the radio or the few records, the handful of records that your parents have. Um, but my cousin, he listened to music that you didn't hear on the radio. And so I got to hear things like, you know, Jimi Hendrix, but I also got to hear things like, you know, The Doors and all kinds of things that I would never have heard on the radio at all, you know, as, as, a, as a little kid. Because yeah. on, on the, on, you know, you hear the radio in the morning before going to school and that was about it, really. You didn't hear, listen to the radio any other time. And so you only heard the, the chart rundown for that week. And and so I was completely, I was completely, you know, absorbed by this music that my cousin loved, which like things like King Crimson, because it all, all of it had like, you know, a lot, oh, not all of it, but a lot of it had a lot of synthesizer on it all, an early synthesizer. In the sixties, there wasn't so many tracks, but I remember like in the, in the beginning of the seventies, there were quite a few tracks, songs coming out or albums coming out where people played synthesizer and so it started to become interesting. 
And I was kind of fascinated by that. I wanted to hear everything that had a synthesizer. I didn't even know it was called a synthesizer. I thought it was called a simplifier. And so, so I wanted to listen to everything that had a simplifier on it. And so I got to find, you know, like discover quite a lot of interesting things through my cousin. Yeah, it was really, yes. really important. So, so I, but at school, of course, I got bullied for being weird, for liking weird music that no one had ever heard of, you know. In the court of the Crimson King, no one had ever heard of it. But, you know, today it's like this like massively classic out record. But back then in 1969, no one, no one had heard of it. Not in my in my class, that's for sure. Yeah. Yes, well, absolutely. No, I was, you know, it was like a very sort of strange. And also my brother sort of forbid me to play any of his records. So obviously, you know, you sneaked in <laughs> sort of with, with sort of, you know, the gatefold sleeve and he even bought the plastic covers because he was that nerdy and you'd have to yeah, touch them without the sort of like putting your fingers on because he would check and and yeah. play them religiously going my god this is amazing you know i even think you know king arthur is a great album so um and henry the yeah. eighth and all those they're just <laughs> they're all just great songs and well, uh, well at the at the, ta- at the time you know then they came out you know they were they, that's that was what was around you know it wasn't you didn't have the kind of like variety of music that you have today you had sort of like rock and roll from the 50s and jazz, sort of like swingy jazz from the 40s, twangy guitar music from the early 60s, and that was about it. And then this progressive stuff, which was happening in the, in the late 60s. So you, weren't, you didn't have really sort of like a massive like choice of music you, might, you could listen to, if, you know, within the genres, of course, you had. But, you know, it's like, as a kid, you wouldn't think about listening to the music that your mum and dad listened to anyway. You know? No, um, it was you were only focused on what was new and happening right at that moment, and and so you know Jim Reeves and Frank Eiffel didn't mean anything to me at all. No, absolutely, and it's interesting because my my parents, especially my dad, had terrible. Well, he loved bad country and western. I know, I know it probably isn't bad, but you know things like Jim Reeves and Boxcar Willie and people like that. So it was easy. It felt easy to um, rebel, or, or certainly not have too much in common with your parents at that stage. It was quite easy, really. But, but, um, today, but today, I don't think young people have that conflict. You know, it's like their parents listen to you know because everybody listens to this mishmash on Spotify. So you know, they're listen, younger people are listening to music from from. That even before their parents were probably born, even stuff, you know, it was mishmash of all kinds of different things. So I don't think it's like I don't think the the, the rebelliousness of music in that sense as we had in the sixties and seventies, uh, you know, I don't think that that is possible anymore at the moment, just to the way that people consume music. Yes, this is true. But on the prog rock front, though, I was very excited because I did find the the source. The, the I went to the complete source of prog rock and found mm. where it all started. With mm. a band called Clouds or One Two Three, and I did an interview with a guy called Billy Ritchie, who yeah, you know yeah. was on keyboard because because it was kind of because of David Bowie in the '90s started talking about him, and then I sort of thought, God, I must try and you know because I have a bit of a Bowie obsession, and then it was you know I sort of managed to get an interview with him and ask him about his career. So it was quite nice because he said that apart from Bowie hanging out with him, all the crowd were sort of people who we you know we now know went into all those prog bands later on in the 70s but um there you go it was quite a nice touch you know i thought that's it you know i can tell my brother that i've done i've found it that's what that's what he said but it was a bit of a sad end because he he had a bad moment on stage smashed his equipment and never played anything ever again in the very um, early 70s late 60s mm-hmm. so that was rather drastic you have to end it somehow maybe <laughs> <laughs> you think he's not going anywhere i'm yeah. sure i'm sure i'm sure if he'd have known how it would pan out in the future it would have it might have changed his mind 
<laughs> I don't know. He was still he was just surprised that people were like interested in doing interviews with him now. So when you got to like 16, this was the mid mid 50s, mid 70s. Did you mm. leave school at this stage or did you sort of go on for sixth form? No, I went to uh, I, I left school. I went to uh, college to do uh, advertising and graphic art. Right. I, I wanted to go. I didn't want to actually. I felt it was something that I needed to do in my life to get some kind of job that you know that was like a flash job. You know, like like being being a graphic designer. I wasn't I wasn't you know the the, the steelwork type or the coal miner type. You know, and and and, and, I, and I thought I'll go I'll I'll go into graphics and stuff and maybe. It was it was it was a it was something that I did. I, I worked very briefly in this in this 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 job. But I was really bored really quickly, you know. And I, and I decided I wasn't. I didn't want to do that in my life. And 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 I, as a as a teenager, I'd already started working at um, Virgin Records and tapes in Manchester. Right. In a little a little small Virgin record shop. It, this was right before the the, the the mega stores even existed. And it was like it was like. I like working here. It's uh, I get to listen to all kinds of new music and I can discover things that I would never normally discover anyway. And 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 and, it, and, it, and I just like, like just being in this job. You know, it was really cool. Yeah. Yes. So I changed. I, I changed my vocation from being a, wanting to be a graphic designer to being to just working in a record shop. And I realised that's really you know that, that was at that moment that's what I wanted to to do. You know, it it, it kind of gave me everything that I wanted at that point. Yes. So how did you go from that to becoming a member of a, of a band? Well, in the 70s, you know, you, you want to be in a band. It just seemed to be it just seemed to be the natural progression. You know, my cousin had bought a, a guitar and I was like, I want to have a guitar. My cousin's got a guitar. I want a guitar. And I kind of just had to save up as much pocket money and do odd jobs and stuff like for every, everything that I had to do anyway but get all the money together and eventually I, went, I bought up some kind of like Taiwanese Les Paul copy or something and um and then a, 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 a few of my other mates they had they had a guitar so we, we, we formed a band and it was called Joe Stalin's Red Star Radio Band but we didn't have a singer and we just practiced in my mate's front room, you know. And eventually, we, I decided I was getting bored with that because it wasn't going anywhere. He didn't have any kind of, like, desire to have a sing, find a singer or, you know, write lyrics or whatever, or even try to sing, for that matter, any of us. And so I, I, I decided to pack that in and then Mick Hucknall went and joined his band. <laughs> now, Mick and you, Mick, before that, and he was in a band called The Cyrus, and he was, like, he was their singer. And it, that was, they were a real prog rock band, you know, he was like sort of Robert Plant impersonator. And, and, I, and I was like, oh yeah, you know, I've left, I've left the front, I've left uh, Joe Stone's Red Star Radio Band and he, and he went, so I've just joined, I'm there singing now. He, he did one gig, he did one gig with them. And then it was like, I don't want to do anymore. I've, he went to see the Sex Pistols. Right. And it, and it changed his life, you know, and, and mine too. Yes. Bit, yeah. So then sort of 78, 70, no, 77, 78, did you then sort of, this was the frantic elevators? Yeah, yeah. Mick said, do you want to join, join a form of punk band? And I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, we were called the frantic elevators. But it was short-lived. Well, it was for me. I mean, not, not for them. I mean, they, were, they, they lasted till into the middle, like 83 or something like that. Yeah, but um, I, 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 
I'd gone to Germany a couple of times before that, and and uh, and on my final tour to to Germany, I ended up in Berlin, and I never went back. <laughs> and so that was the end of my career with the Fantastic Elevators. Yes, that was quite impressive, actually. Seventy-eight. So, what was the draw to Berlin? What did uh, what sort of dreams? The records and music and the idea, of, you know, like no one knew where it anything about Berlin anyway, you know. So I knew the war had ended there, you know. But I was thinking like in all these record shops that probably have like unwanted records, progressive records, Popple Vu records and stuff like that. You know? um, weird Krautrock records that you could never buy in Britain. I was hoping that I'd, I'd be able to rediscover things like Faust and Khan and bands that sounded like that, you know. Cosmic Jokers, Klaus Schultz, you know, I was thinking that I, there's probably like loads of those kind of records. These, the ones that we know, you know, they're the ones that are popular and they've been, yes. been exported, but there's probably loads of records that are kind of in the similar kind of vein that never saw, you know, the shores of Great Britain at all, you know, and I was hoping that I'd find these kind of records and these travels and, uh, and one of the, and one of the trip, no, this one trip took me to Berlin, and and I was fascinated by the idea it was a divided city, and I just wanted to see what was on the other side. I just thought I'd stay for a few days, you know. Yeah, I, I didn't expect to stay there for life, forty odd years. Yeah. No, that's impressive actually, because 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 actually there was the end of last year, there was and and the beginning of this year. There's there's been a lot of interest about this band called Rima Rima, who's just uh, mm. they mm. brought out one EP, didn't they? And then yeah, yeah, and then that was it. And then they've put out a compilation of some you know various material that's been found ever since. And then someone's done a film. And then yes. Dorothy Dorothy Max Pryor's just written a book that's I think just about to be published next next week about you know that kind of scene that she was kind of into and I, I did an interview with Dirod, is it Gary Asquith who went Gary Asquith yeah yeah yes but he was mentioning a band called is it Malaria that um yes yes so is did you manage to hook up with this particular group at that stage well I, I knew Gary Asquith and Danny Berilwati from Mass as they as they were then that was like kind of like the, the, the aftermath of Rima Rima um and Gary became the boyfriend of Bettina Custer, who was the singer, the main vocalist of um, Malaria, who were this all-female band, unique in every respect, and so groundbreaking band actually. And the, um, yeah, and 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 so so for, for me, the, like the connection to Gary's band, uh, Rima Rima, I mean, I knew I, I knew of them. I didn't know I'd never seen them live or anything like that, but. I got to see Mass live at least, yeah. and yes. I took I took Gary to East Berlin. Did he tell you? No, he didn't actually. But he did. He did sort of mention these kind of, yeah. He just kind of potted around the world, didn't he? Sort of doing various interesting things. Yeah. Well, when, well, when he came to Berlin at one point, you know, I was like, well, you you, ha you have to come to East Berlin. You know, you have to go. If you come to Berlin, you have to go to the side and see 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 the East and meet, meet some friends and stuff. Meet my friends, and so I took him over into East Berlin just sort of kind of show him the, the the other kind of interpretation of what socialism is because Gary was quite political and it was quite lefty and it was like oh well, yeah you know what you think and what you believe is, is socialism on the other side of the wall is a different kind of version of that interpretation and I think it's really good that you should see it you know so, to, to kind of like get the right kind of balance because unless you've seen this kind of totalitarian version of, of socialism the the version that your fantasy has created in your mind in great britain is 
there's something else entirely, you know, and it's like I wanted him to see to see what it was like in reality. Yeah, he was quite shocked. He would be, you'd be scared senseless, weren't you? Because I remember coming to Berlin in 87 and we we went to the east side and then it was like, I just remember spending the day there and then sort of thinking, you know, there's this thing about getting back before half 11, otherwise you might just get disappeared or something. You know, it, it was easy to get paranoid and worried at that time of like, God, they could just do anything to us and we could just disappear and no one would care or, or ever find us. So it was it was kind of interesting. I don't know. It it, 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 it felt a little bit more like the fluffy and, you know, anarchic, you know, anarcho-punks and all that. That kind of felt like playing at politics, whereas this felt quite like you were in with the big boys in a way. And I did an interview with a guy. He did a book called Burning Down the House, which is spelled H-A-U-S. Yeah. Anyway, and he, I mean, he talked about, you know, those punk bands and the fact that, you know, they would be followed by the Stasi for just having a haircut. And they mm. you know, they would sort of like find that people would go in their, their rooms and just move a bit of the furniture just to make sure that those people know that someone's been in your space. Just to mess yeah. with your mind and yeah. the fact that you couldn't keep lyrics, you had to eat your own lyrics because if they found them, you're in big trouble. So it felt like, God, oh, that's quite extreme, isn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, like, it, you know, for, for me, it was really important to kind of give the people that I met and who became my friends, give them some kind of um, support, mental support within this system. You know, it's like I wanted them to realise, you know, understand and understand that, that, that they hadn't been forgotten, you know, that there were people on the other side of the wall who actually did think about them and, and thought of, tried to alleviate their plight in some way, you know, because it was very, they, they had nothing to compare it with apart from television, Western television. So they, re, they didn't really know what was going on in the West, to be honest at all. But they had this idea of what it could possibly be and and, and a drive. And, and I wanted to fuel that drive and help that fuel that drive. You know, for the few Eastie punks that I met who were daring enough to look like punks, you know, it was a, it was a dangerous game in the East. You know, so East Germany was so conservative and, and it's like as in a, it being in a band was it, it was a virtual impossible task for a start off because you couldn't just go and buy a, a guitar and drums and bass and form a band. The minute you did that, if you did that, you know, the Stasi were watching you. you know, what, what what kind of lyrics? They, they viewed music as being as a, as a weapon. You know, and for the for the, for the, for the for the for the kids to be kind of pr- oppressed by the state. I thought that their their version of punk was the authentic kind of rebellion, you know, not unlike the like the, Brit, the British version of punk. We, yeah, of course, we created this this thing, became a kind of pop culture or whatever. But that was all. It was a fashion show, you know. And and whereas the kids in the East, it was a it was a political statement. It had so much more gravity. And I always thought that the Eastie punks were really the more authentic version of what punk rock was really about, which was you know, rebellion against this, the boredom of, of the society or whatever. It, you know, it wasn't about destroying things. It wasn't about, like, you know, dis, you know, destroying anybody or any, but anything at all. It was just about, you know, doing something which was um, irritating to the state and, and that make, would make them think and make them have to, to manoeuvre around the situation. And that's exactly, you know, what I wanted to help them to do.
Yes, my God, I know. It was, yeah, no, it was a completely different gig, wasn't it, really, you realise? John Lennon said at about the 60s, it was like, well, uh, I don't know, some kind of comment about, well, we all dressed up. And I think the punk movement had a little bit of that, really. I think you would have thought twice about being a punk in East Berlin than you would have been in London, Manchester, oh, Norwich. Yeah. Oh, you for know. sure, for sure. You could, <laughs> in London, you could just, you could have dyed your hair pink or red or anything like that and wore, you know, a, a kilt and bother boots and stuff and no one would care you know like it was at the beginning when punks certainly started it was like oh they they, they don't comb the hair you know and uh, they're wearing my old my auntie's pullover or something it, it, it didn't it, it kind of was a bit irritating but it didn't after a while it didn't really mean anything did it, it kind of became for coffee table whereas in, in in the east if you if you wore a, a punky armband and you walked across the main square, Alexanderplatz, one of the massive CCTV cameras would zoom in on you, pick you up, and before you got to the end of the, end of the square, the Stasi will have taken you away because they didn't want East Germans to see, you know, normal East Germans to see in East Germany there are punks because in East Germany, the, the authorities, they believed that punk rock was a, a kind of like the... Um, that it was because of like capitalism had failed and everyone was everyone was unemployed because of capitalism failing. Therefore, you know, like the, 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 in East Germany, no one was unemployed. They didn't have an, an employment officially. So, so to have have punks would be a kind of like a, an admission to the failure of, of, of socialism as well. So, so anyone who looked like a punk got immediately, you know, taken away. Yeah. Yes, no, I, I I got that feeling in 87 for just a few days sort of hanging about there. So, um, yes, I yeah, you, you change your narrative and story, don't you? But then, you know, as you started to establish, did you form, you formed a band, though, didn't you, in, in sort of Berlin at this stage? In 81, I formed a band, yeah, we were called Die Unbekannten, which is German for the unknown. It was, it was like a nominist omen, really, you know, because no one fucking's ever heard of us. But, you know, the the idea behind this, it wasn't it wasn't intentional. We didn't intentionally sort of go, oh, we're going to form a band. It was like I'd been asked to play at a festival for the reunification of Germany. And I thought, oh, this is a good cause. And then I realised I don't have a band, don't have any songs. And I phoned up an English friend who I'd met here over the years. And I said, hey, Alistair, can you sing? And he was like, strangers in the night, sing strangers in the night. I was like, stranger than that. I was like, brilliant. We've got a gig next Wednesday. Come round to my flat and I'll show you how to play bass. And so we sat in the pub across the road from SL36, finishing off our songs before the gig. And and when we did this disastrous concert, we thought, oh, we only played like three songs. It was not a disaster. We got off stage and I said to her, well, never, ever, I'm never going to do that ever again. And then this girl comes running up to us, goes, oh, that was brilliant. I want you to you know, make a record for my record label. <laughs> Her, her name was Elizabeth, and she had a record label called Monogram Records. And we were like, she must be drunk. You know? <laughs> but she, in fact, she did make this record, you know, with us. And and, and we were like, what we're going to call ourselves? And, and and in one of the magazines, local kind of like time outy type kind of magazine, you know, city magazine here. Uh, one of the journalists had written a review of the concert, and he wrote one of the high points of the concert were these two unknown Englishmen who played some kind of avant-garde set. It wasn't avant-garde, really. It was, it was just that I'd, I'd hit the, the wrong drum pattern on our drum machine and it played some kind of bossa nova to our kind of like punky kind of music. And, it, and, it, and, and they thought 
it was great. So we so, so within our little scene, they all all the people would just like nickname us the Umbicanton. Ah, here come the Umbicanton. And so we ended up like decided we just like said, okay, we might as well call our record that and ourselves that. Yeah. Yes. Does this then morph into Shark Venus? Is this the no Shark sh- Shark Vegas? Um, Bernard Sumner asked me if I wanted to go on tour with with New Order. Uh, just after just like after Blue Monday had been released, and just before Thieves Like Us came out, it was like within that period in that that, that April March April sort of uh, time frame. And um, it, Bernard asked me, "Do you want to come on tour with us and be our support act?" And I thought, "Oh, if we're going to do a tour of Europe." With, with new order no one's going to be able to say the unbecanton they'll think they're called die unbecanton and they don't know what unbecanton means and it's too long and i thought it's too complicated i have to think of a name that we can call ourselves that's other than that and we're going to have a drummer and a bass player with us anyway on tour so we'll change our name and so we changed our name we wrote new songs and changed our name to sharp vegas right yeah. and that was that was the beginning because this has just appeared on a compilation hasn't it noel gallagher yeah, yeah, well, well, the thing the thing is, is that when we, when we first started, we had we only had like one demo that we'd made, right? And um, and we played the song live, and I played Bernard on demo tape, and he was like, I like, I like that, you know, I think we should we should release that on Factory. <laughs> and okay, if you produce it, it, you know, it will be, you know. So so we released it on Factory. And then, and then Factory in America were like, oh, can we, can you give us a track for a compilation? And so we made this track called Pretenders of Love, which is our kind of like homage to sort of like soul music, really. And, um, and that was released on Young, Popular and Sexy. And that's the song that Noel Gallagher has recently rediscovered and put on his Christmas Spotify playlist, which I thought, yeah. you know, Made in Manchester playlist, which I thought was quite an honour, really. Yes. Yeah. And then after that, was this just kind of a project you were just doing as a very short term and with no idea of like continuing it? With you mean Shark Vegas? Yes. Well, we it wasn't really kind of short term. We were got, we were on tour, and this, the tour was very successful for us. Yeah, and 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 so we carried on playing, and we did we did quite a few gigs and. Um, things festival we, we actually opened german cable television when cable television was being introduced into germany they, they had like a they did a, a huge event and they asked us to perform there so we were the first thing that germans saw on national cable television for sods you know and then um what else did we do we did we did, we did quite a few things quite a few few like tours around the place but uh it it wasn't like we think oh you know this is going to last forever. We did look at some demos and, and we, we actually won the Senate's rock competition that they have here and got ourselves a nice practice room in the Templehof airport. But it wasn't like, I wasn't thinking, oh, we're going to, you know, make an album or anything like that. I never, it never went beyond really that because Ali, Alistair decided he was going to go back to the UK. So it wasn't part, it was really pointless carrying on. Yes. At that point, you know, as, as under that, under that particular name, Shark Vegas. And so what I did was um, I formed a new project with Shark Vegas drummer called Leo Walter. I, I, I formed a, a new project we called Alien Nation. Blimey. Um, but, yeah, released, released a couple of records on Alien, as Alien Nation. And how long did that last? Oh, also like maybe like two, three years or something. 
We, did, we never played live. We just we just was dabbled around in in Leo's front room, you know, making making kind of like acid housey kind of tracks. Yeah. But we, we 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 did it for other. We did a sort of pop poppy song, and we wrote actually I wrote the song with Alistair in sort of like eighty seven or something, eighty six, and 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 I just thought we should record this, and so I had to go recording it, and that became a single. I released that on MFS. It's called Lovers of the World. So our, our environmental song. Good. That's the way well, you were ahead of your time, weren't you? So were you, were you were you in Berlin in 1987 for the was it 750th birthday of Berlin when they had that yes, three sir. day they, they three day festival which featured Bowie one day and then was it Genesis and then Eurythmics as well in front of yeah, the yeah, Reichstag? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was I was here, but I didn't go to any of the gigs. No, I didn't go to any. I was like, I didn't want to see David Bowie in a suit. I was really perished. I thought he looked like a bank manager. I don't know. I don't see. I want to retain the image of David Bowie as a stylist. Yes, well, and all, and also his uh, mullet, the hairstyle. So then, what? I mean, as the eighties progressed, I mean, you know, I was obviously in England. You know, we listening to people like John Peel. You know, the the electronic music scene started to develop quite a lot with people like a guy called Gerald, and then he started bringing in sort of lots of other bits and pieces from the Chicago house scene. And then there was the 808 state and all. What were your, what was your kind of musical direction being in Berlin at this stage? Well, like everyone, you know, uh, we, unfortunately in Germany, you only had two opportunities to listen to John Peel. It wasn't like in the UK. So, so you heard John Peel on the British Forces Radio, his ra his show on the British Forces Radio, or on the British World Service. Most most Germans actually had no idea that he had a show on British World Service because they never tuned into British World Service. They only tuned into the British Forces Radio. But he actually had two shows. So you got a double dose of John Peel playing completely different music on each show, which was also for me quite. You know, at least it was a, it was a it was a connection to to my youth because I'd listened to John Peel being a kid, you know, secretly yes. with my transistor radio at night in the seventies and sixties and seventies, and, and it was like this is I could at least and and, and John Peel actually came to Berlin in like around about eight, 81 or eighty two I think it was, and um, I took him to East Berlin and showed him around the city. God, that must and, have been a nice moment. Yeah, it was great because we became quite, you know, quite, quite not not visiting friends sort of thing, but like we corresponded quite regularly to each other. And uh, he was always always interested into the into the music that I was listening to. Listening to. And um, in in the in the nineties, he came to Berlin, made a he made a he made a a program called Travels with My Camera. Um, I think that was for for ITV actually, yeah. and um, I took him around. I it was it was it was him coming to Berlin and me showing him around basically. Yeah. My God, because you'd had that other little bit of fame with Muriel Gray, didn't you? Doing the tube in sort of '83 as well. The, so you the, you the tube Berlin special, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> were you were you the go-to person for anybody in the UK to sort of go right? He's your man. Go and get yes. I'm well, fortunately, I was. Yeah. Um, it could have been somebody else. Yeah. But there wasn't there weren't that many people. You know, I was it. Yeah, I was the one who, who they relied on to like organize everything for them. And so, and I'd never done this job before. I'd never, I've never organized a television program or anything. Initially, it was like they asked Chked Bone, who used to write for the new, the new uh, NME, new, new Musical Express, 
uh, under the name Bieberkopf. They asked Chris Bone, do you know anybody in Berlin who like knows about the, the Berlin music scene? And he just went, oh, contact Mark Reed. <laughs> and that was it, really. And then, and, and then I put the, the tube programme together. And I just really wanted to... Sh- I mean, I could have played in the tube myself, you know, been on telly myself, you know. But I was like, I, I had too much to do, to be honest, to, to like putting the programme together, making sure that everything was organised and everything was where it was at the designated time and everything. And I, and, I, and, I, and I wanted to show my friends, you know, I wanted to show my friends in the, our scene, you know, these are German, authentic German new waivers, you know, Gudrun Guts and Neubauten, but as well, you know, Turtische Doris and the Ärzte and, you know, show that my version of West Berlin and, and also at the same time, I also talked them into doing a, a part of the program in East Berlin because they were just going to do West Berlin. They didn't know anything about East Berlin. And well, well, there's something happening in East Berlin. We have to show East Germany, you know, East Berlin as it as it is now. And it was when we, you know, they, they wanted to have an East German punk band. And I was like, it's not going to happen because the state won't allow you to. East Germany will never allow you to put an East German punk band on telly. And you can't just go over to East Berlin with a camera and film. You know, it's not going to happen. You know? And eventually, we—I I, I was walking down the street, and I was on a, actually I was on the tram on a on a and I saw these two kids with a guitar case, and I just jumped off the tram and collared them and said, "Do you want to be on British television?" And they kind of looked, you're in a band, you know, yes, we are. So, you know, what kind of music do you play? And they went, oh, we're a bit like the police. You know, are you good? And they, oh, yeah, we're good. And I went, oh, okay, um, do you want to be on British television? And they were like, what? they thought I was mad. You know, I thought I'd come from, they thought I'd come from Mars or something. I'm like, it's like me telling, you know, this opportunity that she's an almost impossibility for them. They were like, they said to me, oh, we don't have any permission to play. We, we don't have any, any paperwork to, you know, to own instruments or play in front of an audience. We, we've never been vetted by the state to be able to do this. I'm like, okay, let me see, you know, like we go to your practice. And I went to see them practice and they were really good. And I was like, oh, okay, put you on British channel. And, and, and then I did like two months of kind of like legwork trying to convince the East German government to allow this unknown band that no one had ever heard of and never knew existed to be on the telly. And they eventually they said yes, and we got them on the, on the tube. But it was like that. It, in desperation, they realised the the authorities in East Germany they realised like just like a week before the tube was about to go out, to be aired, they, they realised like oh we've, we, nobody knows in East Germany has ever heard of this band, and so they had to squeeze them on one of the East German pop programmes and say yes we've just discovered this brand new band and they're going to be on British television next week. <laughs> Oh, that admin must have been amazing. So yes, blim, blimey. Then did you, and then sort of as the 90s progressed, you, you start a record label, don't you? Which is um, an electronic yeah. record label. Was was this sort of inspired by the amount of musicians that you had dis, sort of discovered and knew were there? Or did you mm. just build an exciting entrepreneurial spirit? Oh, well, I never, I, never, I never thought in my life I'd ever build a record label, you know. I mean, the labels that I loved, like you know, Factory, of course, um, and Mute and 4AD, you know, these were labels that I asked. Like, that was the, for me, they was, that was the benchmark, you know. Like, I would never thought, never thought in my life I'd ever make a record label. Um, but I used their kind of direction as an inspiration to myself but like the idea only occurred to me after the fall of the Berlin Wall when the state-owned record label Amiga 
was suddenly free to be able to decide what it, it, what it was able to do. You know, no longer it had to be records authorized by the state. They could just make it up, you know. So I was like, well, well now that you're free, why don't you make a techno label? And they're like, what you talk, what's that? What's techno? Because they had no idea. They didn't, you know, they hadn't seen this kind of like evolving music scene happening in West Berlin like I had. You know, techno was a small club. It was one or two clubs in the city with, you know, maybe 100 fans or something. So in East Germany, they had never heard of it, you know, and I was like, it's, just, it's a new sound. And, and they were, well, if you know so much about it, why don't you do it here, you know, with us, <laughs> for us? And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll create a label and, and everything. And then, um, Kind of, kind of gave some idea what it, what this this new music could sound like, kind of electronic music, and and I call my label Masterminded for Success because I really wanted to retain the three letters MFS because those three letters meant Ministerium for Staatssicherheit, which is actually the the official name of the Stasi, and I wanted to keep that those three letters, and so they wouldn't get like shoved under the carpet of history you know yes a little homage actually because i did an interview i think it was a guy called craig walker who was in a band called power of dreams he he was sort of located or relocated to berlin and he, he sort of you know said that the biggest kind of industry that berlin has now is kind of techno it's the the kind of mm. thing so did it is that a true and did it start from this kind of the early 90s was this the kind of the it started from, started from the late 80s it was, you know, techno, techno as we as we kind of knew it. It started sort of like it went from this acid housey kind of stuff, like eight oh eight states sort of sound, if you like. It kind of went from that into and became techno in in the nineties, yeah. um, as we know it under this term. And we were a little club in of people, you know, like 100, 150 people maximum, maybe. We just go out to the. We'd see it, you know. You go out and you see the same faces all the time, and it wasn't really kind of going anywhere. But the we had a radio DJ called Monica Dietl, who she's our friend, and she played the music that we we would buy from. You know, I get my mum to go to Eastern Block in Manchester and buy records that I couldn't find here, and it was all this kind of acid house, you kind of techno, you know, like Jeff Mills, you know, one Atkins kind of records and. And Dimitri Hagerman was very, you know, he was he was um, a promoter. Dimitri he put on the Atunal Festival that I played at and stuff. And and Dimitri was also into this kind of techno thing. So he started this club, this acid house club called uh, the UFO, and it was in the, in the cellar of his office in the back room of somebody's apartment. You know, and and this cut just sort of. A, a trap door in the back and made an acid house parties every weekend and, and we went from that to to a proper club and then that, the ufo the ufo club was like the only techno club in the city it was only a small place like you know and and, and but then you know monica would play the records on the radio and the kids in the east would be listening to this music and thinking i'd like to go to a techno party i'd like to know what that's about because it was being played on the radio and in the East, it, like everything that's played on the radio had some kind of importance. Um, and she'd be talking about the party tonight. It's going to be this, it's going to be there. And they were thinking it's like techno is a massive scene, you know, that they can't gain access to because there's no such thing as a techno party in East Berlin. So when the war came down, all these Easter kids wanted to go to a techno party and right. they discovered there wasn't actually any techno party, any cl clubs apart from one club and it was really small. 
And so they decided to make their own, you know, and that's because because the wall being, you know, in no man's land, then you had all these kind of like derelict buildings that were empty, just go in there and occupy it for a night, you know, put a generator in a smoke machine, two turntables, and off you go. And and that's what was, you know, that was the thing that made, you know, the techno scene. It was the influx of thousands of Easter kids who <laughs> wanted to participate. My God. And, and the love parade also helped as well to, to give it an international image, you know. Yeah. But it's very true what Craig said, of course. You know, you know it, went from, it went from being you know, this kind of like question mark, is this techno thing a fad or is it going to be over by next week kind of image to turning over in 2018 1.4 billion euros for the city that's boggling isn't it that's amazing you know that's just amazing so we you know setting up a record label most people's experience you know especially those indie labels from the 80s you know they don't last long how did you manage to sort of get it together and navigate it and set up a, a such a thriving business because this is kind of huge isn't it you, well, the thing, the thing is, I, I never ran the record label like it was a business. You know, as, as much you have to do all those kind of businessy things, I never, I never, like, I've never looked at it as like it's it's a business. You know, it's a, it's a, a platform for me. You know, to to present young and interesting people, and hopefully, you know, give them a um, a chance to find themselves you know in a in musical sense and you know expand on their creativity in some way and i didn't really kind of have this idea that i'm going to like force you to make a certain sound, sound of music i mean like the i had this, this idea of where i wanted to go with my music and with the label and I, and, I, and i thought you know the the idea of fusing this techno sound, which is very kind of like monotonous and hardcore kind of like darkness and give it some kind of uh, optimistic kind of, kind of like euphoria inducing kind of music in a sense, because I felt like, you know, after the fall of Berlin Wall, people were kind of feeling quite euphoric about it. You know, feeling, they were feeling really, really positive about the future. And I wanted to kind of like put that into a musical way. Um, way. I mean, like, you know, like, Growing up in the 60s, you had mods and rockers and you had, you know, teds and skins and you had punks and rockers. And, just, and it was all, you know, hippies and, you know, straight people. It was like, it was like always, there was always a balance somehow, you know. And, 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 I, and in the 80s, you had, you know, Neubauten and Nina, you know. And I was like, well, we need to have a balance between the hard kind of darkness of tech, this industrial techno and... And, and have something which is a kind of a bit more kind of like optimistic and pleasant and kind of melodic and plays with your emotions kind of version of techno that my friends in the UK will understand because they didn't understand what it was about because they'd never had the fall of a Berlin Wall and so they'd never had this kind of like feeling of freedom and being able to choose the kind of music you listen to for the first time in your life like these Germans had. You know, they had this moment, you know, everything had been dictated by the state what you ate what you listen to and yes. so, so suddenly the wall comes down and you can decide for yourself what it is you can finally buy your pink floyd you know dark side of the moon and go to a techno club and listen to this music you've never heard of before and and with in britain they didn't have that so so it was like how can i how can i bring my friends in britain to this moment without it kind of being too 
obscure, you know. Yes. And, 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 I, and I wanted to add a bit of melody to the music. And I, and I found um, this young guy that I'd met a couple of years prior who was making a bit of house music. His name was, was Cosmic Baby. And I, and I told him my plan, my kind of idea, my concept. And I just said, it's up to you to interpret it the way you want. You just go, go, go off and do something with that directive and see what comes out of it. And um, and that became then trance music. Yes. And the, because actually just on that bit, when you mentioned, I think you just mentioned Nina, I remember John Peel playing Happy House and I remember him doing an amazing version of 99 Red Balloons, which might not be at all techno, but I do remember he had an obsession <laughs> with Happy House music, which I did sort of enjoy. Is that completely, God, have I just done a big social faux pas there? But it was just, you know, it just had a kind of, um, a happy gayness to it which we all loved so there you go so um yes yeah but there's the, you know the, the 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 thing was that the 90s after the fall of the Berlin wall the 90s looked so so positive you know it was like things were happening you know things were balancing themselves out in a certain ways in in the city uh, the city was a unified place it was no longer this kind of like divided city so this this energy that was generated by the this the, the the this newfound freedom was kind of like really addictive, and and you had this um, soundtrack of techno, which kind of drove everybody from weekend to weekend. All the parties were always packed out, and and you had the love parade, which went from being 150 people in 1989 to being almost two million people in 1999. You know, and that was the global power of this techno music because there's one significant really important aspect of techno was the fact that it was instrumental music. All the Eastie kids didn't speak English. And so it was, they didn't want to have any kind of difficult words to just try and figure out what the meaning was behind it. The music was just instrumental and it just, you could dance all night and it was seamless. And the picture was painted in your mind as you're in the club, you know, it was, it was infectious. And that was the thing which was important for the reason that techno has become a global phenomenon, in fact, the fact that there was no, there was no really hard to understand lyrics in in any kind of kind of language. You can put any any language in techno. It doesn't, it, you know, just a few words, a sprinkling of words from anywhere, like whether it be from like South America or you know East Asia or whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a complete song. But it wasn't. It was that was that was the beauty of techno, and it kind of like it was a driving force. But then after the the millennium, you know, in 2000, you know, the, the future was still looking great until 2001. And then, and then things changed and, and the outlook on, on, on the future changed. And the, 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 you know, the kids had started to learn in the nineties all started to learn English because the internet was English and buying things off Discogs and Amazon was all in English. And so everyone in the 20s, 20s younger people they all grew up with it with it with english in a in a much more intense way than their predecessors and so so the, the the music has started to find a voice again i think and people have something have something to say you know and that as we go into 2023 you know we actually have a, a really kind of like a darkness that, that, we, that we've not had for a very, very long time. And, and I think that, you know, we have to kind of like find the musical balance for that somehow. Yes. I mean, how did the last, I mean, how's this decade 
been then so far you know just going back the you know to to you know three years ago I mean how did you sort of navigate that period and obviously your life was about techno clubs and then suddenly it's 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 all stops doesn't it well my life wasn't just about that you know because because I'm I make music. I sit in a studio every single day, and I, and I make music and, and produce music bands and make remixes and things. And um, that's my kind of bunker, if you like. And and it's like out, out of that, you know, the world kind of revolves around outside somehow. Um, I'd already just before um, the pandemic hit, I actually was. Um, I'd been travelling around the world with this documentary film that had been made about my life in Berlin. It's called B-Movie Lust in Sound in West Berlin. And I'd been traveling around the world showing this movie at, um, you know, like music schools and entertainment. Uh, not, not like, you know, like as, as, as a kind of educational program, you know, not showing it in cinemas, but showing it in, in, in like uh, clubs and, and, um, places of venues where they'd had like alternative music on in the past and i took this movie to china and i met this band a festival in chengdu they were called stolen and i started working with them produced their al album took them on tour with new order a tour of europe with new order we were going to go to japan and the pandemic then suddenly hit and all those plans were curtailed everything was there was no gigs no trip to japan nothing and, and, and just in 2019, I just started to work with a Lithuanian singer called Alan Astros now. He's like a, a, a very popular Lithuanian pop singer, really. He was the first pop artist of Lithuania after the fall of communism, Soviet Union. And uh, I'd met him on my film tour and we decided we'd make some music together. And I made a, we made a song for a film called... Um, Chant de Loop, it's a French Cold War movie. And um, and we just decided we'd make an album. And so together, so, you know, 2019, we sat and made an album. He, he in Lithuania, us in, in, in Berlin, with me and his, my partner, Michelle Adam. We just sat there and created this record and I released it then in 2020. And um, then we made another album, <laughs> which we released in uh, the beginning of 2022 which is called Life Everywhere. And each album has, has a kind of theme about it, really. Yeah. What, the first album was called Children of Nature, which is a very kind of like, it's a, it's a bit like about our, the, the theme of the records are about our particular environment as it stands. And Life Everywhere is about, you know, being caged in this, pla in this world that we've created for ourselves and trying, and trying to get out of that. Yes, my God, you have been, your collaborations and working with people is quite phenomenal, isn't it? Looking at your, you know, back catalogue and, and the amount of releases. I mean, you don't, um, yes, you don't, you don't ever slow down, do you? I mean, it's, it's quite phenomenal, the amount of output. Do you sort of manage to sort of navigate that quite smoothly? I mean, is it because you've got a studio at home and, you know, you can oh. sort of take some control of the process? I, I, I don't have a studio at home, actually. Uh, I, I, sh I share it with my my partner Michelle Adam, um, and it's in his home. Um, but the, the 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 control, if you like, is 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 all dictated by, you know, having a time limit for certain things, which I set myself, and and, and I and I, and I'm 
capable of, of finishing something, which is really important. Something that I've learned over the years is, you know, you have to call it a day at some point. You have to finish something at some point because you can always, you can always tweak it and always try and make it better. And then in, in the most cases, you, you know, it never, it never will become better. It'll just become like ironed out, you know, and I, and I like the rough edges. So I try and keep things kind of as close to the immediate in, 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 idea or whatever of that I, I immediately started with. I'll try and keep that and then kind of go from there and then finish it, but finish it. I think that's really important. Yes. Yeah. So with, with your sort of the, the kind of the work that is as a composer, you've, this is the one that you've got, which is on your website. And that's the one that the last release was losing my mind. Is that correct? That, that was no, the... no, that was the, that was the song that we made for uh, Chant de Loop, this film, right. French film. That was, we made that song for that. Um, that's off Children of Nature. That's off the first album I did with Alan Astros now. Um, they're all on Bandcamp. You just have to you know, type in bandcamp.com and Alan Astros now, Mark Reader, and it will come up. It will um, <laughs> yeah, but, but there's also, I've got another Bandcamp page for, just for myself because I made this album called uh, Subversive Decadent, which is like basically a, a remixes compilation of remixes that I've done for people like the KVB and um, New Order and yes. stuff like that. Yeah. This, is this the one that's titled 5.1? No, no, that's that's a, that's a, an album I released in 2010. Um, 5.1 is a is a is a compilation of like a few a few well-known artists you might have heard of like, of like Depeche Mode Pet Shop Boys, John Van Clark, yeah. John Fox, um, and Bad Lieutenant, which is actually New Order, uh, but they weren't allowed to call themselves New Order at that point, so they called themselves Bad Lieutenant. Um, and then a load of like not so well-known people, like May '68, or you know, um, I did a track with Martin Walsh from the Inspiral Carpets uh, under dis another disguise, and and. You know, but we, everything was in surround sound. We recorded everything in surround sound, so it was a, a wraparound experience in five point one. This is this was before Dolby Atmos. Um, it would be even more immersive. But we did it a five point one album, and and we released that on as a, as, a, as a triple box set. It was like two D two CDs and a DVD, two CDs in stereo and a DVD, and um, you can still, you can still find it. You know. Yeah, still out there, but it's got my Depeche Mode remix on there, which is it's the only album that has this record on this track, this remix on. That you know, like I, I made this remix for Depeche Mode, and um, but my dad had, 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 had a heart attack and I, and I wasn't able to finish the mix in time, so I missed the deadline. And so I said, I've done this mix for you now. What, what can I do with it? Can I put it on my own album? And they went, Yeah, okay, you can do that. And it was the first time that they'd ever, they'd ever I think it's the first and only time that they ever allowed anyone to do that. Yeah. <laughs> You're, yeah, it is phenomenal what you do. I mean, it is just extraordinary. I mean, I've never met another artist like you in the sense of that amount of work and and sort of collaborations and sort of labels and and clubs. It is. It is well, life's an adventure, and it was like I came to Berlin on this adventure, and 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 it's kind of just kind of snowballed out of all proportions. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, and it's like. Things like really, you know, we're talking about East, East, and West as well. Before, you know, I I did this concert with this band called the Totenhosen, 
The, yes. Right, the Tottenham Hulls and a band that John Peel actually really loved. He played this. They, they even did a John Peel session for him at one point as well. And then um, I became their sound, live sound engineer because I was doing live sound for Malaria. That I was their manager and the live sound engineer and their support actor. And, and we did a gig in, in near Dusseldorf and um, the singer of, of the Toten Hosen was, was my driver. And he, and he said, I've just formed a new band. We called the Toten Hosen. And then I became their mixer. And I just, at one point, you know, I'd played a secret gig in Czechoslovakia uh, with the Unbekannten. And I was, I was thinking, oh, I bet you can do this in East Berlin. If you can do it in Czechoslovakia, you might be able to do it in East Berlin. But no one had a drum machine. No one had, you know, I'd left the cassette stupidly in Prague. So, so all, all our synthesizers and drum patterns were on this cassette. I was thinking I'm going to go back and do another gig, but we never did. But like, I left the cassette there. And, and so I didn't have a cassette in West Berlin of our backing track. And so no one would give us any, any kind of like tape machine anyway. So, so okay, I'll do it with the top nose. And so I did this illegal, secret, illegal gig in this uh, church disguised as a blues mass, as they called it in East Germany, which was like you could play blues, you know, Eric Clapton and Bob Dylan or something. Um, but I thought we'll do it with the top nose instead. And I got these two girls who were my friends to helped me organize this gig. So, you know, we, we, we did this gig for 30 people and I chose said you know, 30 people because Sex Pistols on, they didn't, they didn't know this, but I said, this, you know, well, the Sex Pistols played to 30 people and the amount of the, the response from the 30 people that went to see Sex Pistols, what happened, we had this punk movement a few years later and I, and I was hoping that I could kind of like ignite the same kind of thing to the to these kids in East Germany, you know, and, and that is exactly what happened, you know, the, we did this gig, secret gig, 30 people came and then they told all their friends we did a gig in the church, secret gig and couple of months later other bands started going to their local churches and knocking on the door and saying can can we do a do a blues mass and then <laughs> it kind of went from there and the whole of east germany ended up you know being like that and, it, and at the same time you know, the stasi were kind of like okay you know we know where they are now they where we know they're contained within the, the blues mass they could, could 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 observe that so i did them a favor really you know and um, but the kids also had a, had a place to play, and um, I did. I did that, you know, and, and, and the repercussions of that at the end became, you know, it started that snowball rolling, which ended up being, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall happening and stuff like that. So it's, it's you know, been quite an interesting experience actually doing to do these things and you know you don't know where it's going to take you at the time you don't know what's going to happen next it's like the ball in a pinball machine you know yes it could just go anywhere i mean if you could have whispered something to your like 16 year old self starting out is there anything in particular you would have just said oh yes i would i would have gone in that direction or i thought about doing this or that i just even if that person ignored you um that, yeah, I'm sure there are quite a few things I'd tell them not to do. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it, I, I don't have any regrets, to be honest. I think that, yeah, in reality, yeah, do everything. I do everything that I've done already, you know. I don't, you know, for me, it was always a question of taking the value of the power of music. And, you know, I knew that as a little kid actually, the, the power of music. I knew how it, it made me feel. 
I knew how I could see on the back of a cornflakes packet that I could buy an electric guitar for 25 quid and a million box tops. You know, uh, it, it had it had a power. It had a power. I could see it in, the, in at home with the way my mother reacted to the Beatles having long hair. I could see that power as a kid, and and all the TV shows that I used to listen to as a kid, like Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet. All the music was always so dramatic and so kind of like inspiring, and 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 so you know, in a sense, um, that's the way I've kind of conducted my life. You know, and it's like. The, the idea that, that uh, music is to force, it's a, it's a force to be feared by people who think it's a threat and for others it's, it, it's pleasure and, and happiness, which is really, after all, what we all want, you know. And when I see the world as we have it right now and these politicians telling us lies on a daily basis, all over the world, it's not just in the UK, it's, it's everywhere, you know. Um, that might, shouldn't you, your first objective be to make us all happy first and to, you know, make us all contented and wanting to do better and wanting to kind of like have, have, a, have a, a, a pleasant life, you know, in this modern world that we've created for ourselves rather than being completely and utterly slaves to a handful of people who, don't appreciate what it is that, that, and also like people's creativity, you know, like people don't know the creative most of the time. That's why I created MFS was for all my Easty kids, my friends in the East, because none of them actually had any idea that they were capable of making music. And the, there was no platform to go to. The state-owned record label was not going to give you a chance and and, and 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 no one in the West was going to give them a chance. You know, EMI was only interested in selling Pink Floyd records to the East. You know, they weren't going to give any Easty kid who didn't have a, any any instruments, but he had a good idea. They wouldn't give them the time of day. But I thought, well, if I create MFS in East Berlin with the former Amiga record label as my kind of like support, then I can give them a platform and give them some place to run to and try. And one of those kids was Paul Van Dyke. And, yes. and you know, I said, go into the studio with my friend, Johnny, he's got a, a small studio and try out and see what happens, you know, and, and motivated this kid, for, you know, who wanted it. He was inside. He was there wanting to break out, but he didn't know how, you know, and that's why a lot of people in the East, is, you know, the creativity was in there. It was just needed to be, that box needed to be unlocked, you know. And it's like, there's so much we could be doing. There's so much, like, great things and positive things we could be doing in this 21st century instead of worrying about our gas bill and electricity bill and, you know, Vladimir Putin bombing the Ukrainians off the planet. It's like, we shouldn't be there in this 21st century, in 2020s. We shouldn't be there. We should be going to the 2030s in a in a in a with optimism and happiness. We're in the 21st century. We're not any longer in the 18th century. This is true. I know. No, I, I, I'm nodding away here. Actually, yes. Well, look. Thank you ever so much, Mark, for giving me the time for this. It's been amazing, and it's great to, um, yeah, to get it. I mean, I can always send you the link to this if you want afterwards. And oh, um, well, you should certainly do. Yes, I can repost it and. and uh, you know, like you know, maybe people who are listening to the show find you know interesting listening to the the new music or 
for them it'll be the new music that they probably don't know they probably don't know that I, you know did a a, re, a version of the a forest by the cure with yeah. robert smith you know and you know the, the, my version is nothing like the original at all no i was listening to that you know only earlier this week thinking God, yeah. this is fantastic. And, or, or, or the new record by craig walker yeah and the cold yeah i did a i did a track with him uh we called it the uh, electric shoes and and, and that's that's the, the the name of the record, I think, as well. And that's that's um, that was the last thing I did with him. Yeah. Great. So that's the record. That album comes out. That album comes out. I think next week. Yeah. Oh. Does it? So basically, for anybody wanting to hear this, go to put in your name, Bandcamp, and you're pretty well going to find music, music gold theme. Yeah. Or on 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 in Spotify, they can look. Uh, not everything's on Spotify, of course, um, but there's quite a few things on Spotify, and there's quite a few things on Bandcamp. There's quite a few things on YouTube, and there's quite a few things going to come up soon. Yes, <laughs> you know, like some of, like for example, Umbercant and stuff is not on Spotify. It's never been never been released on on digital format yet, and 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 I, and I probably will do that this year as well. Right, but Bandcamp is also just a good place for people to go and listen to. Well, the quality is the best on Bandcamp. You know, it's quality on Spotify and Apple's absolute rubbish. It's like it's like the difference between a VHS cassette and watching a 4K Blu-ray. You know, it's like ridiculously bad. Um, Bandcamp is actually you get 24-bit high-quality, high-definition high uh, audio. It's much better, and you can actually buy records if if people have CDs or vinyls. You can buy even the records as well, and the rec and the money goes straight to the artist as opposed to like Spotify that gives you like zero point zero 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 three cents for you know one play. Yeah. I know it's terrible, but look, thank you ever so much for this. I will, yeah, I will post it, and I will sort of send you a link as well because it would be amazing to uh, to yeah hear some more. But that's brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much, Mark, and um. Have a great day. That's all. Thank you. Okay. Well, yeah, again, massive thank you for this. Okay. Take care. And all the all best. best. Thank you. you nice too. to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. I'm sure you guessed that. Anyway, a massive thank you to Mark Reader for giving me the time for that interview. This has been The C86 Show. I'm David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. These have all been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.